Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. What's up, everybody out there in podcast world? This is another edition of Smart People Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm one of the hosts, Chris Stemp. And I'm the other host, John Rojas. And we're, we're glad that you could join us. We're glad that you're sticking with us. We take a week off here and there, but we're keeping it on track. We're doing good things. First, before we get into today's guest, I wanted to, to ask you, John, you know what's been in the news in the past couple weeks other than, say, the uh, there's only three episodes of the Jersey Shore left? I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah, I saw it on t- TV today. But nice. aside from also the economic turmoil, that's not what we're going to be talking about this episode, although probably sometime soon. Um, there's been a lot of things happening in the the war on terror. We dropped a bomb from a drone on some dude in the middle of the desert and blew up his truck. And he didn't even see he didn't even see it coming. Now, that was pretty awesome to even have to think that you can walk outside and have a bomb dropped on you has to be terrifying for these guys. Imagine the next guy who's thinking of planning something. He's like, for the rest of my life, I have to look at the clouds. I don't know if you, if you guys out there haven't heard. He was a, an American citizen who had uh, supposedly planned the Fort Hood attacks and the underwear bomber, a bunch of things. And there's been a lot of debate over whether or not this is right, because he is an American citizen that we didn't really give a fair trial. But I personally think that's ridiculous. I know we don't we don't put our views into the show too much, but I get a little fired up, you know. But so anyways, it's just a lead in because... It's a very pertinent topic. It's been pertinent for, you know, the last 10 years, and that is this this war on terror. Today, we speak with author Tom Shanker, and he, he co-authored the book Counter-Strike, The Untold Story of America's Secret Campaign Against Al-Qaeda. 
he's you know he's one of the perfect people to write a book like this because he is a Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times. He's been all over the place. He's hung out with the troops, and you know he's just an all-around smart guy. He went to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, where he specialized in strategic nuclear policy and international law. And he graduated cum laude in political science from Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Yeah, and I personally got a chance to read the book prior to the interview, and it's it's an awesome book. It's it's so good because it reads kind of as a history book, but much more interesting and intelligent. He has the inside track on all this stuff because being the Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times for an extremely long time, he has sources reliable sources all over the place that respect him and respect his ability to tell a a true story. So you really get to see the reality of this war on terror. And the backbone of it is when 9-11 occurred, the United States didn't know what to do. I mean, we knew we could throw a bunch of money at the problem, but we didn't know how to go about it. And in the past 10 years, he goes through exactly how our campaign has changed how our intelligence and our belief on how to win this war or at least how to deter attacks has occurred. And it's so cool because there's things that you wouldn't even you wouldn't even think about. I I mean, I know you enjoyed one part of the book where he talks about just the type of enemy we're facing. Yeah. You know, one of the points that he made was how the terrorists were attacking bakeries and garbage companies just to make it look like the situation was a lot worse in Afghanistan than it truly was. You know, if people can't get their bread or if people see trash sprawled out on the streets, it's going to make the situation look dire and grim. So, you know, these terrorists would go after bakeries and and blow them up and, you know, make people worry about not being able to get bread. And this was, I guess, similar to propaganda tactics that were used, you know, World War One, World War Two. And another example, he goes in depth on one of the turning points in the war when a a random car stop was done by some some troops on the ground and all they were doing was checking a car that was out past curfew and it turned out to be one of the biggest wins for the U.S. and the amount of information we gathered, it changed the way we were going to proceed for the rest of the war. So... You know, we're going to let you listen to the interview with Tom. He's a super interesting guy, comes across really well. And we also encourage you to check out the book, which we'll have a link to on our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. We encourage you to go there, read the the post that we put up there. And while you're there, don't forget to click the banner for Amazon. Every time you're going shopping and you're heading to Amazon, go to our page. As Chris mentioned, smartpeoplepodcast.com. The Amazon banner is on the top. The Amazon widget, search widgets on the bottom. Click those. It's absolutely free. And, you know, it throws a little kickback to us for every purchase that you make for them or through them. And it really does help out the show. You guys have no idea how much it helps. We were actually just talking about getting new mics. So maybe we can improve the sound quality a little bit. Absolutely. Here's Tom Shanker and our interview with him regarding Counter-Strike. What we like to do is kind of just get an idea of what it is that you do and tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are. Sure. Uh, I'm Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times. 
which is one of the greatest jobs in the known universe. I get to spend my days at the Pentagon uh, talking to you know really interesting people about really interesting problems. I also spend a lot of time overseas with a deployed force, whether in the combat zones of Iraq or Afghanistan, as well as in areas where uh, you know the troops are deployed in places where combat's not underway, such as Germany or South Korea or other places around the, the, the world. Uh, I spent quite a bit of my career overseas. I spent uh, almost as much of my adult life living under communism as under any other form of government. I spent more than a decade living in the former Soviet Union, in communist Eastern Europe, and also spent two years based out of Sarajevo covering the war in former Yugoslavia. What had you living over there? Was it work or how did exactly. that end up? Yeah, it was always, you know, as a correspondent, I spent 15 years with the Chicago Tribune, and now I've been with the New York Times for almost 15 years, and I would not recommend going to such horrible places on, on your own. Uh, you definitely want to have the backing of a major institution if you're going to be spending your days in a conflict zone. I completely understand, and I have to say that, your job does sound like a fantastic one. How how do you manage to get to be the Pentagon correspondent for, you know, one of the largest newspapers in the country? Well, I've been interested in military affairs for a long time. In fact, my wife likes to tease me that my very first byline was about the tactical advance of the Israelites who, who passed Pharaoh's forces owing to a meteorological event of the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, d- didn't file that on a computer, but chiseled it into stone or wrote it on papyrus. I've just been doing this for a really long time, Uh, always interested in foreign policy, got into national security in in grad school. And uh, as I said, I've lived, you know, in places where I've been on the receiving end of this stuff. I I joked that my five years living in Moscow, my tax dollars were paying for nuclear missiles that were pointed at me. (laughs) Wow. That is that is living on the edge of your seat, I must admit. Exactly right. I, I always wanted to ask for a refund on the, on that portion of, of my tax check that paid for those Pershing two missiles because I really did not want to pay for my own nuclear annihilation. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. I didn't know that you lived, you know, in this in the former Soviet Union and things like that. But I do want to to talk about your book, which is extremely interesting and just came out. It's called Counter-Strike, The Untold Story of America's Secret Campaign Against Al-Qaeda. And the the reason I kind of mentioned the thing about Soviet Union is because you do talk a lot in the book about how the Cold War kind of changed or I guess assisted in the way we have dealt with the terror threat. And I guess that that is because of your background. Well, that's exactly right. I sort of entered the whole post 9-11 world with all these you know, tools and experience and sets of personal nightmares that were shaped by the Cold War and the tense nuclear standoff with the Soviet Union. And of course, after 9-11, there was this very understandable uh, focus by the Bush administration on capture or kill as the only way forward. You know, send troops out, you know, send assassins out, send the bombers out. But after a couple of years, it just became clear that you can't kill your way to victory against a global movement like, uh, you know, violent religious extremism. And I was just talking to a lot of, you know, former professors, former colleagues, and just looking over my own writings. And I realized that the classic Cold War deterrence might still have some answers 
to apply to the war on terror and uh, began reporting that with my colleague Eric Schmidt from the New York Times. And what we found is that actually there, there were some analytic um, thinkers deep in the Pentagon and at some of the military commands who were trying to apply those parts of deterrence from the Cold War that might make sense in the post 9-11 world. It's so interesting because I used to always ask my history teachers because I was never a big history buff. You know, I used to say, well, what is what is history good for? You know, it's stuff that's happened in the past. And the common answer is always you have to learn from your mistakes and learn from things that have happened in the past. And this seems like an instance where you believe that truly came to fruition and was a big part in the way we handle this. Well, it certainly was, and it's funny you say we learn from our mistakes. If so, we'd all be geniuses because we all make so many mistakes. I'm afraid we, we don't learn from them often enough, and it did take the U.S. government several years before it realized that its tactics were actually creating more militants that it was taking off the battlefield because they were so clumsy and so oppressive. They were actually creating more jihadis or at least setting the conditions for more extremism by it, its very action. And, and the challenge in applying Cold War deterrence to terrorism is, is, is pretty obvious. And in fact, you know, Bush in 03 and 04 said that, you know, deterrence doesn't work against these millennial terrorists who want to blow themselves up. And, and the the challenge is that terrorists don't really hold any territory that you can put at risk. You know, during the Cold War, you could aim all those U.S. nuclear missiles at the Kremlin, at Soviet military bases, at their missile silos, at their factories, at those nice uh, uh, dodges that they had on the Black Sea for all their Bolshoi ballerina girlfriends. I mean, you, you could hold those at, at risk and affect the behavior of the Soviet leadership. Well, terrorists don't have territory, literally, or not much of it. Um, and, and it's true that, that many of them can't be deterred by threatening death from the top end you know, of bin Laden, you know, was going to be what he was no matter what. And once you strap on a, a suicide vest, it's too late. But what these analysts found is that there really are things that you can put at risk and change the behavior of potential terrorists. You can put at risk their chance for success because they would rather not carry out a mission than fail. Uh, you can put at risk their financial networks. You can put at risk their networks for, for smuggling and running guns. And so little by little, the U.S. government's allies got smarter about what a terrorist network is and what it needs to operate. And so even if you can't kill the committed leadership or the committed suicide bomber, there are a lot of people in the middle who support terrorist causes but aren't ready to die for the cause. And that's the financiers, the gun runners, the people who rent the safe houses. And if you threaten them with a certain kind of retaliation, you can actually influence their thinking to get out of the business. And that's classic deterrence. So when did you notice, you know, the first change in these tactics and what was really the tactic that got the U.S. government to realize that we needed to go about this in a different way? Yeah, the real change probably began happening in the 2004 to 2006 time time uh, frame, and and there's one example that really proves how how this works. Um, it doesn't take a lot of money to be a terrorist, but it does take a lot of money to be a terrorist network. And 
money in the Islamic world, especially places like you know Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Afghanistan, banking is not the central way that terrorists move money. They move their money through these things called hawala networks. These are family-run businesses with associates in many countries. So you walk into a hawala in country X, and you want to transfer money to a friend or family or a terrorist guy in country Y. So you give the guy the money in country X, you pay a service fee, and you, you walk out. That guy then calls his associate in the other country, says, I have this much money, here's who's going to pick it up, and off you go. It's kind of like an informal Western Union based on relationships. Very hard to track, not a lot of paperwork, and that's why terrorists use it. Well, in Afghanistan, where this was really funding a lot of the terrorist and insurgent violence, the American military shut down a couple of the hawalas, but there are thousands of them. I mean, they, they occupy buildings, they're big and small, and they simply couldn't shut down all of them. But what they did, they, they went into these hawala networks and said to the owners, hmm, nice business here, nice wife, nice family, nice house, nice garden sort of the Tony Soprano thing. And they said, you know what? We know that you have a business that includes terrorist financing and regular financing. If you want to keep the nice house, the nice garden, nice life, stop doing business with terrorists. Otherwise, we will shut you down. And that is literally deterrence in the classic sense. You are threatening retaliation for action you want to change. And they found that it changed a lot of the behavior of these Hawala networks. And they dried up so much of Al-Qaeda's money that recruits were actually having to pay their own transportation and training costs. So it really worked. In the book, one of the things I love is how in-depth you can go and, and the knowledge you have about numerous, I, I don't know if I'd call them turning points, but just large events that have occurred in this war on terror. Can you look back to any of those and say it's the single largest, you know, whether it be a, you know, an amount of information we gathered or a bust we made or things like that? Is there one that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, well, there are a couple that we, we write about. And at that level, you know, our, our, our book sort of divides the way the military looks at the world. You have the tactical, you know, operations in the field. You have the operational changes, like the understanding of terrorist networks. And then at the strategic or top level, we have the story about, you know, the, the search for a coherent strategic doctrine for the war on terror that would parallel containment and deterrence you know, during the Cold War. And so you're asking about some of these tactical case studies. And one of my, my favorite um, happened in Iraq um, just before the surge in 2006. And I love it because it's just this little platoon of cavalry guys out doing what they do best. You know, they're, they're patrolling the streets of northern Iraq, which is the hotbed of, of um, al-Qaeda-affiliated terror, um, improvised explosive, suicide bombs, and all that stuff. And one night, they surprise the, this car that's out after curfew, and they stop the car. The driver gets out, runs away, self-detonates, blows himself up, leaving only a pair of nice shoes and sort of his, his shin bones there on, on the sidewalk. And then they catch the guy who's in the back, and he says that he'd been kidnapped, but you know he's not handcuffed, he's not roughed up, and he has a briefcase with him. Well, they get all this material, and it turns out to be literally the al-Qaeda battle plan for how they want to counter the surge that is moving into Iraq, this vast increase of American forces that was ordered to try to turn 
the war effort around because this time, you know, 2006, you know, Iraq is on the verge of civil war and it's fueled by the al-Qaeda terrorists and the Shiite militias and other Sunni insurgents. And, and what, what they found was, you know, maps that were hand-drawn by Zarqawi himself, you know, the, the head of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And they found all the attack routes. They found where the arms caches were. They also found some really diabolical plans. Al-Qaeda was going to attack bakeries in Baghdad because buying fresh bread every morning is a sign of the quality of life. They were also going to blow up garbage trucks and kill garbage men because they wanted the garbage to, to pile up so the people in Baghdad thought their government was falling apart and couldn't serve them. And, and some of our sources you know, compared the seizure of the, of the Al-Qaeda battle plan to cracking the Enigma code during World War II that showed all the German ship movements. And it allowed General Odierno, who was then commanding the day-to-day -day operations of the surge, to move his entire force placement around to, to, to stop Al-Qaeda-specific actions, which he did, of course, very successfully, all because of this you know, one cavalry platoon with the lucky hit one night in north-central Iraq in 2006. Had we been fighting more sophisticated country with you know, a sophisticated army, you could argue that doing cyber attacks and hacking into their networks and stealing their plans would be a lot easier than what we've had to do so far, where you're saying, you know, stuff's hand-drawn, on paper, carried in a briefcase. What strategy besides a blind luck strategy of let's pick out persons A, B, and C and hope they have information on them did the U.S. military implement to, to really try to go out and seek this information? Right. Well, there's another case study that we write about happened uh, on another September 11th, actually, September 11th, 2007, um, when the American military had been watching this smuggler's camp along the Syrian border with Iraq. And this was the, the route that all the foreign fighters were coming in to make jihad against the American government and the American military and the Iraqi government. And it's interesting to note, Iraqis did not want to be suicide bombers. They wanted to live for another day. So all the suicide bombers were coming in from overseas. So they had put you know, predator drones and, and all kinds of, of, of interesting um, ISR collection data o overhead. And they realized that this was, you know, the most important smuggling route for Al-Qaeda. And they hit this place and they hit it hard. And what they got there became known as the Al-Qaeda Rolodex. I mean, it was a list of where every suicide bomber from across the Middle East and North Africa was from, who recruited them, who inspired them, who bought their tickets and all that. As I said, it was called the Al-Qaeda Rolodex. It was fortunate because Al-Qaeda, in kind of a pathological way, is as anal about keeping documents as were the Nazis. This was a really interesting data on about 800 suicide bombers who had come into Iraq. So what do you do with it? You know, the U.S. can't invade all these countries, you know, Saudi Arabia and Libya and Egypt where the suicide bombers were coming from. They couldn't invade Syria, which was the transit point. So what um, the, the officer whose commanders had seized this material decided, the officer was General Stanley McChrystal, he decided to declassify this information so it could be used. And it was all compiled in dossier form, and it was given to the senior State Department ambassador for counterterrorism who took this data to each of the countries from which the suicide bombers were coming. And he could say, look, we're not making this up. 
These are your passports. These are your internal travel documents. These are copies of airline tickets bought in your country that show that your citizens are making jihad in Iraq. Now, you may not care if they hurt the American forces or the Iraqis, but some of these are not going to end up being suicide bombers. They're going to be the guys who learn how to make the bombs. They're going to be the guys who learn how to organize attacks. And someday, they're going to come home and they're going to be committing terrorism on your soil. So even if you don't like the U.S., it's in your interest to stop this. And General Petraeus, who was the commander in Iraq at the time, said this effort did more, this diplomatic effort, this exploitation of intelligence, did more to halt suicide bombing than any military action of the entire war. Wow, that's incredible. And, you know, it's one of those things that as somebody who just only has the ability to get their information by watching the news, one of the things that I've picked up over the years is that if there's any real silver lining in in all of this, it's that as a country and all of our agencies, we've learned to kind of work together. And then it seems from what you're saying, we've also been able to do that globally. Would you say that's correct and that we've kind of finally been able to pass information through the agencies in an efficient manner? Well, certainly more efficient than 9-11. And so it's sort of a glass half empty, glass half full. To be sure, many of of the walls or silos or cones that divided uh, the U.S. government before 9-11 are are quite a bit down. I mean, before 9-11, the spies didn't trust the soldiers. The soldiers didn't like working with the diplomats. Nobody shared intelligence. That has improved greatly, even though it's still not perfect. But certainly the trend lines are in the right direction. What's going to be interesting as as, as the budget is trimmed over coming years because of the global economic meltdown, and as resources, money and all that, uh, become more scarce. It'll be interesting to see whether these interagency competitions pick up again. Also on this subject, I'm wondering how is it that we have, you know, here in America, not only avoided another large attack since 9-11, but specifically a, a nuclear threat, like a dirty bomb or something. It To me, it seems so impossible to track all of these people, and not even track them, but to be able to disrupt them enough where they can't just go into a stadium or a train station or somewhere that's going to do, you know, God forbid, more damage than was done on 9-11. It seems impossible. And I don't know. I mean, I always assume by now we would we would have our second large attack. What's your take on that? Well, everybody had, had assumed that. And I think that what Eric Schmidt and I describe in Counter-Strike is sort of a Darwinian process, if you'll let me use that phrase. You know, the U.S. government has gotten better and adapted and evolved and the terrorists are adapting and evolving. The difference is the U.S. government has to be good every day and lucky every day. The terrorists only have to be good and lucky every now and then. And it's true that since 9-11, there hasn't been a mass casualty attack. And what this says is that the U.S. government writ large has pushed off the day of the next attack because we say another attack is certainly coming. But that day has been pushed off and perhaps the severity has been lessened. And we break down the current threat into three categories. Al-Qaeda senior leadership based in Pakistan is very much damaged, especially with the death of bin Laden. Even so, they still very much want to carry out a mass casualty attack, an attack of mass effect, whether it be nuclear 
or chemical or biological or radiological, sort of what, what you said, the hand grenade wrapped with uranium or something. Um, and then you have the affiliates who actually are the greater risk today, Al-Qaeda uh, in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen uh, or in the Islamic Maghreb, these sorts of places. They have not yet shown the capability to carry out a mass casualty attack, but they're very clever. Think about the underwear bomber over Detroit. Had he been able to set off his underwear, he would have brought down an entire airliner over Detroit. It would have been a, 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 a terrible thing, even if not on the scale of 9-11. Um, Al-Qaeda in Yemen also were the ones who sent those printer cartridge bombs through um, commercial cargo airliners. And even though they, they were found, that failed attack shut down the cargo industry for a couple of days, forced very expensive improvements in security, probably costing the industry several hundred million dollars in response to a failed attack that only cost $4,000. So terrorists see that as a victory. They're throwing pebbles into the cogs of the Western economy, trying to just cause mischief. So even an attack that fails, tactically, can be a strategic victory. And then the third line of threat, of course, is the homegrown, self-radicalized, lone wolf jihadi. Someone very hard to find, mostly because they get inspired by the internet. They don't really tell people what they're doing. They only pop up when they're actually ready to commit an act. And the law enforcement community is very worried about that in America. You know, this definitely goes right into the fact I wanted to ask you, how do we continue to fight this war given, like you said, the amount of money it takes? I mean, for a $4,000 printer or ink cartridge attack, it's going to cost us hundreds of mil millions. It almost seems seems unsustainable. So I'm trying to figure out what do you think is going to happen in the future given the amount of money we have to pour into catching, being lucky and catching that one guy or that one cell or something like that. That's a really great point because it truly is unsustainable. Um, you know, putting aside what you think about the war in, in Iraq, just, I know it's hard to do, but just for a second, all, all of your the listeners of this podcast, the war in Iraq was defended, was described by the Bush administration as being about terrorism that you know, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, could link up with al-Qaeda for an existential attack on the U.S. So what did the U.S. do? It invaded with 150,000 troops. I mean, using 150,000 troops for a counterterrorism mission is completely unsustainable, just as you say. So the U.S. needs to get more agile, more efficient, and leaner, which is what you see the evolution to using unmanned drones carrying out attacks small groups of special operations forces, either training a local security force to defend its own country or going after high-value targets like bin Laden in Pakistan. The most important thing to make the war against violent extremism sustainable is for the American people to adopt an attitude of resilience. I mean, every attack, even those that failed, cannot so shock this country that we spend unnecessary amounts of money and take unnecessary legal or military or intelligent steps against an enemy that has failed. I mean, look at, look at Israel or even Britain. After an attack, it, people mourn what happened, but they get up and they return to business. That kind of resiliency of the public psyche is really the only long-term sustainable strategy to combat terrorism. That was actually going to be my next question. I wanted to shift the focus from Al-Qaeda for a second and focus on the American psyche. 
do you see us in the foreseeable, like, I guess, near future as getting that confidence back that we had prior to September 11th, where we didn't walk down the street worrying that something was going to happen? I mean, I know here in D.C., we just had an earthquake a couple weeks ago. And immediately the first thing that I thought was happening was we were getting bombed. I mean, A, because we never get earthquakes in this area that often. And B, because, you know, September 11th only happening uh, 10 years ago. But, I mean, do you see us getting that confidence back? Well, it's interesting. In our valedictory interview with then-Defense Secretary Bob Gates, he said that one of the things that made him saddest was that America had become a fearful country. And just as you said, you know, we are not a fearful country by nature, but 9-11 did that to us with all of the literal costs. And, and psychic costs that have followed. So the most important thing is for you know the American people to, to realize um, that we can recover, that we're a strong country, and that no single attack is going to be you know an existential assault on everything that we stand for. But it's also up to to the politicians. I mean, you, you mentioned being here in Washington. I mean, it is such a polarized political environment right now that on issues of counterterrorism, you know, Democrats, Republicans, left, right are looking for weakness politically and rhetorically rather than looking at what is best for the nation. And in more traditional times, you know, politics stopped at the water's edge. And when it came to discussing, you know, international threats, you know, Democrats and Republicans came to together. And that's why it's so important at the top level for the president to be honest with the American people and say, we, we are going to get attacked again. There's no way to prevent every attack. And when we're attacked, we will do everything we can to respond and recover, but it's up to you to be resilient. But no president can say it that literally because his political opponents will say, aha, within that resiliency, he's talking about how weak we are and how he's going to fail. And so that kind of discussion is not an environment that will lead to the kind of improvement and attitudes that you're asking about. I know we're jumping around a little bit here, but I wanted to tap into your expertise a little more. Do you think it was the right choice to invade Iraq? And then really, regardless of, of the answer, how did this actually help us to capture Saddam? I mean, clearly, had the U.S. not in, invaded Iraq, Saddam wouldn't have been on the run and, and sort of hidden in, in his, his, his ideal. Uh, I mean, look, when the U.S. decides to invade a country and commit, you know, sooner or later, we're going to reach objectives like capturing Saddam Hussein. But I will leave it up to the history books to decide whether that overall war and you know the vast cost of of human life and blood and treasury was worth it. I mean, you know, the the, the two sides of the argument are, are are pretty clear. On one hand, you know, Saddam was not a nice guy and, you know, all the Iraqi people now at least have the opportunities to pursue uh, you know, a freer and democratic way of life. Um you know, at the same time, you look at what happened with the Arab Spring, and might those reforms and changes have happened internally over time without an outside invasion? Uh, again, that's just a hypothetical that nobody can answer. We are about at the 25-minute mark, and I okay. really appreciate the time that you've given us. It's been a great conversation. I know our listeners will love it. Again, your book is Counter-Strike, The Untold Story of America's Secret Campaign Against Al-Qaeda. It's a wonderful book. Do you have any other websites or anything else out there that you would like to plug? Yeah, I mean, our book site is www.counterstrikethebook.com, and we post all of our speaking engagements and the reviews and other things. In fact, we will link to the, this podcast if you send me a link once it's up. 
Oh, absolutely. And we'll do the same. And Definitely. We, we truly appreciate your time. Well, it was a great discussion. Thanks so much for your, your interest. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. All right, Tom. Thank you. Yep. Sure. Bye now. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Hope you know a little bit more about what's going on. We encourage you to read up on it, you know, stay up to date on what's going on with the war. It's a terrible thing that we all would like to see come to a close. And so the more educated we can be, the better. Knowledge is power, right? So anyways, here's the deal. We, we love doing this. We're going to keep pumping them out in between our jobs and all that stuff and take our time out. And we need some help from you guys. We just really need for, for you guys in any way possible, take two seconds out of your day to do something like go to Twitter and just follow us at Smart People Pod. While you're there, tweet the episodes to your friend. You know, take a look at us, send some things around. We really appreciate that. And head on over to our site, smartpeoplepodcast.com. You'll find a contact us button there. This is the easiest way to get in, in touch with us. It sends an email straight to us. If you guys can just go there, hit the contact us button, send us ideas for shows, for guests, what you want to hear about, what topics are on your mind, any of that kind of stuff. It truly helps us out in planning the episodes and, and finding guests. Yeah, we got an email today from, from a listener, and he just simply said, thanks for doing what you do, guys. I really appreciate it. It makes my commute better. And I was like, you know, that's that's really a big thing for us. And perhaps most importantly, go to iTunes. Make sure you subscribe, you know. You don't want to do the download episode by episode because you might miss something awesome. Subscribe to us. Make sure you get everyone. Rate us. Give us, you know, a five-star rating, preferably. And let everybody else know that, that you enjoy listening. So we really appreciate you being here. And because of that, we want to even give you guys something back. We have two copies of Tom Shanker's book, Counter-Strike, that we would like to send to two lucky listeners. So all that we ask you to do is go to Twitter, Smart People Pod, and just tweet about us. Use that hashtag. Or go to Facebook, Smart People Podcast, and write a little something using our hashtag there. We'll get in contact with you, and we'll get you a free book. Thanks a lot, guys. Until next week. Pot it up.